Friends and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spashano, joined as always by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? You know, Dan, it was one of those topsy turvy days. Didn't have a good day at work, but then I got a nice text from one of my exes and said, uh, "Wish you were here." And I thought, "Oh, that's really nice." And I said, "Well, where are you?" And they said, "I'm at the cemetery." So just <laughs> just wasn't one of those good days. Oh, jeez. Actually, that was donated to to me by one of our listeners, who I will. Remain uh, anonymous there. Well, your uh, your banter has become so famous, Benny. Our fans are submitting jokes. What's they're, that? They're feeding you? me stuff. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> well, you know they uh, as as we uh, we got a lot to talk about today. We are joined by a uh, friend of the program, friend of the show. He's been with us before. You've seen him wrestle throughout uh, North America for what was it? At least. Uh, I know at least 20 years I've seen matches going back to the 90s, 2000s. You've seen him in WCW, WWF. He's uh, one of the harder punchers I've ever seen in the ring. And uh, not a man you want to cross, but a great man to talk to. We are joined today by Knuckles Nelson. Knuckles, thank you for being here. Uh, thanks for having me on tonight, guys. You know, you uh, <laughs> your name's come up a few times with some of our past guests. You got a, got a good reputation for that right. Well, I, don't, I don't know if that's good or bad because I'm left-handed. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, um, Benny, you were kind of the brainchild behind putting this episode together. So you got Knuckles here. What, what are you thinking? Yeah, we had Knuckles here uh, back, actually, I think it was August 31st. And we talked a lot about his journey through life, his, his wrestling career, his uh, friendship with uh, our sponsor, Jimmy Valiant. And this is going to be a little bit of a different show. There's a little bit, a little bit of controversy here. Um, recently, John Moxley... Uh, returned from a uh, a rehab for uh, alcohol addiction and uh, went on TV live and said some said some rather unsavory things which we'll get into but um and the reason why we brought knuckles back was because of his own life experience which you really didn't get to speak much about um the last time he was on so uh Nux, um tell us about your own journey uh with addiction which is actually detailed in your fabulous book well, you know, my book from Waking Up from the Wrestling Ring to the Yoga Mat, uh, they told me when I published the book that I could have taken every chapter and made a book out of each chapter because I covered so many things. And one of the things that I covered in in uh, a couple of the chapters was um, my, myself having big problems with drugs and alcohol before I was wrestling, dur during the time I was wrestling, and after I wrestled until I finally got sober in 2003. So you had, I mean, you're talking years and years, right? I mean, you're not talking about a, a five-year run. You're talking maybe, what, 20, 25 years that you were uh, you were having issues? Yeah, and one of the reasons I'm so open to talk about this stuff is because I'm on the other side of it now. If I wasn't on the other side of it, I would probably be keeping it a secret. But um, I'm talking about, you know, um, alcohol and marijuana from my early teens all the way up through my 20s and 30s. And, um, and around 40 years old is when I finally was able to get sober. You know, I, I, I hate to think about the, the, the broad spectrum of it. Um, obviously we talk every week on wrestling and, and we've had great conversations 
and wrestling is filled with stories. Uh, the, the Davy Boy Smith, Jake Roberts, uh, just I mean, anywhere you look, the several of the uh, the Von Erics. We we were speaking of of Carrie before we we went on the air. And it's not just wrestling. It's athletes across the board. Lawrence Taylor, Daryl Strawberry. There's history is filled with high profile cases of professional athletes getting tied up in drugs. From your personal experience, if you don't mind speaking on it, what is it about the athlete lifestyle, be it baseball, football, hockey, wrestling, that that brings about such frequent drug abuse? Well, I can only tell you my experience, and the person sitting next to me could have a totally different experience. But one thing for sure, addiction does not discriminate. And if you have money, if you have fame, if you have fortune, it doesn't matter. It's It could be the same thing as a person walking down the street. When it gets you, it gets you. And, you know, whether it's an athlete or a politician or a musician or an actor or a guy that works in a factory, they're all dealing with the exact same thing. It just seems to me that <clears throat> as an athlete, almost you're, you're almost more susceptible because you have the free time, you have the money. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, you're, you're probably the, the drugs are probably uh, available, but I do think you have a good point there. It, it's, it's pretty much endemic across the entire population. But do you think that an athlete might be particularly uh, vulnerable? Like I said, I don't think it discriminates. I think it's it's really it's something in a person's DNA. It's something that um, that you know when it when it gets you, it gets you, and and you have two choices: you can help yourself and you can get some treatment, or you can eventually die. Those are really the only two options, and have a long, painful life leading up to that death, usually. Well. You talk about getting clean, something come up, Benny and I have talked about it before. We're kind of in agreement. And again, I'm I'm not trying to speak for anybody, but Benny and I both uh, raised an eyebrow to the, when they reading up on Moxley about the the idea of inpatient rehab. And it's, I've heard success stories. I was wondering if you have any thoughts on that, how 20, 30, sometimes as short as 10 or 15 days in a patient facility can break decades of crippling addiction uh, i mean it just seems i hate i i don't want I'm, I'm trying not to sound um what's the word uh skeptical but it just seems too good to be true that 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 can work as well as they say it can do you have any thoughts on that i do actually um let's see the first thing that i i know that they do not do in these places and in, in detoxes rehabs is Determining whether or not someone is drinking too much or if they're an alcoholic. There is a big, massive difference in the two. And for some reason, they don't even talk about that. It's there's There are people that just drink too much and they stop drinking and they're fine. But if you're an alcoholic like me, um, there's a lot more work that has to be done to recover from this. A lot of there's a, there's, there's a you know anyone that's listening right now that could be in recovery might disagree with what I'm saying across the board, but I know what worked for me. There are people that have been sober for 10, 20, 30 years, and they say that they're grateful and they're recovering. Well, if I'm sober for 15 or 20 years like I was, and I'm still recovering, that means I missed something along the way. And what the thing is that I missed, I, I went without drinking and, and drugging for 15 years, and I was 
not a happy camper. I was not doing well at all. I was angry all the time. I was having road rage. I was having like um, bizarre um, eating habits. I was a sex addict. I had all these other things going on in my life. And it was because I was totally disconnected from God. And I'm not going to make this into a religious thing because it's not. But I was disconnected from my higher power. And the only way that I was able to um, get reconnected was by doing step work the 12 steps and the 12 steps need to be done with someone that knows what they are doing. And if you have the right person guiding you through that process, you can recover. And I can only tell you that's true because I am living proof of that. I'm, I'm just skeptical uh, and, you know, just kind of compounding on what Dan said that, you know, you have 20, 30, however many years of this habitual behavior and to think that it could be broken in, in 30 days, I would think it would take 30 days just for people to understand or the, the professionals to understand the, the magnitude of the problem. And I'm just going back to I'm, Steve Howe, uh, a major league pitcher for the Dodgers in the early 80s. I think he pitched for the Yankees, the Twins. He was suspended seven times by Major League Baseball for, for drug infractions. So and I, I believe he went into rehab every time. Um, D- Dwight Gooden of the Mets, Daryl Spurt Strawberry. You know, Lawrence Taylor all went into rehab multiple times. And so I, is, is it that it's not thorough enough? Uh, is it just a quick fix or? Well, here's my thought on that. I have a friend that went through the same thing that you just dis- discussed with Steve Howe and Dow Strawberry and, and thousands, maybe millions of other people that have done this. When she came out of rehab after a 30-day stint in a very expensive rehab that was not covered by her medical, she was drinking right again afterwards. And she called them up and she said, "This didn't work. You know um, what? You know what, what am I supposed to do?" And they and they uh, they told her, "Have you ever considered going to AA?" Like they they were they were admitting that it didn't work. And the problem with these places are it's like a car wash. If you have a car that has mechanical problems and you send it through a car wash, it comes out nice and clean, but those problems are still there under the hood. And that's exactly what it is when you go to these places. It's a spin dryer. They send you through their pro- their process and their program. And when you get out, you really haven't addressed what was wrong at all. And I, I don't mean to keep hopping back to it, but to me, it was being disconnected from God and having no faith. And once I was able to open that door, everything fell into place. And I mean, I'm, I, be, I became an author. Everything got a lot better for me. Um, and I was able to like put it all down on paper. And I get emails from people that have read my book all the time that say they thank me for like sharing my experience and what happened because uh, I'm not really a big fan of AA either. I don't think that that, I, I just think it's it's the actual 12 steps that that will that will help someone to recover. So you're more about, because I was just about to ask that, you're more about the substance, or excuse me, the substance of the 12 steps than the program itself. Well, like I said, anyone that was tuning in to hear about wrestling might be a little disappointed right now, but this is important stuff. In 1938, the book Alcoholics Anonymous was released, and there were no meetings back then. There were no support systems. It just had inside this book these blueprints in this way to recover from alcoholism and and thousands of people were doing it back then. And then over the years, AA kind of morphed into this other thing and it went in a different direction. And it, it focuses more on fellowship and people depending on each other and less people. Ah, I don't want to hear about God. I don't want to hear about God. And, and you know, and it just um, it changed into what it is today. But I was very fortunate. I found someone that knew exactly what they were talking about and um, they helped me to recover. So you do think AA is a little bit more uh, thorough than the rehab, but obviously it's still incomplete. 
correct? There's different kinds of AA. There are, there are AA meetings where they focus on the book that I just described. There are other meetings that don't want anything to do with that book, and they just want to sit there, and they just want to talk about their problems. They want to talk about how they don't feel good. They want to talk about problem, problem, problem. And I've always said, if I'm talking about the problem, I can't possibly be talking about the solution. So if you find what's called a big book meeting, and it's got to be a specific kind of meeting, they're talking about the solution. And they're, they're, they're you know, so it depends. There are different kinds of AA. It depends on which one we're talking about here. Well, then let me get your thoughts as we look at help and programs. The Obviously, we're going to, you know, you mentioned hopefully people tuning in to hear about wrestling. You can't talk about drugs, alcohol, and things like that in the wrestling world without mentioning the WWE being the biggest wrestling company in history. And they've kind of been, at least in their own words, at the forefront with their wellness policies and with other things. But they've also gotten a black eye, con con it seems almost constantly. Um, I, you know, several examples such as Brock Lesnar te uh, test failing a drug test with the UFC the same month they announced him for SummerSlam, only for the WWE to have to explain that he doesn't have to take their wellness tests because he's a part-time employee or uh, the Usos with um, I believe it was Jimmy Uso getting a DUI and then winning the tag team titles at the very next show like hadn't even finished a court date yet and uh, stories of, of high profile people like Randy Orton uh, not getting the same drug penalties as other people um, but then at the same time you have uh Roman Reigns being suspended, William Regal being suspended in what was a buildup to him winning the world title. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts uh, in today's landscape of how the WWE or or a company like that is handling what you had to go through 20, uh, 10, 20 years before. Well, I don't think wrestling has anything to do with addiction. I think it's it's it just, it just does it. It has nothing to do with it. The wrestling world is not going to to uh, make a person end up being addicted to drugs or alcohol. As far as I know, the WWE is does what they can for people. But if they, you know, it's up to the person that want if, if they want help. A person needs to want help. Um, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes, what their wellness program is, but I would say it, it would have to be today better than it's ever been. I really don't know. I, I, that's my honest answer because I haven't been, I haven't wrestled there since 1999. So I, I really don't know. But I know back then when I was wrestling, everybody was partying and everybody was, you know, but there's a difference between partying and having a good time and, you know, having a, a, a deep uh, a deep problem with with drugs and alcohol. There's a huge difference in the two. Hey, if you don't mind, I'm asking you to span a little bit. Um, a recent high-profile segment from John Oliver. He has a last week tonight. It's a satirical news, or I should, maybe not. Excuse me, not satirical comedy news show. He did an entire segment in recently on the WWE, and one of the things he touched on was the death rate among wrestlers. They actually had a graphic. Uh, I wish I could share uh, through audio, but I uh, showed the average life expectancy of, say, a normal American versus an athlete versus wrestling. And you saw it was so much worse. And you hear, you know, they, the stories of, of people having, you know, drug related heart attacks at, in, in their 40s, uh, instances of like your, your Kurt Hennings and Eddie Guerrero's. And, and I mentioned earlier the British Bulldog. You, you say wrestling doesn't 
cause drug addiction, but does not does it not have have a the an environment that takes such a toll on the body kind of leave you more open to being susceptible to things like opiates and stuff like that? When you put it that way, yes. Yes, it does. Yeah, I don't know about today. I don't know what the kids are doing today, but you know, back in the day, that you know, there was a, a lot of use and abuse going on. Um, I know my, myself personally, it was marijuana, alcohol, street drugs, weightlifting drugs. You know, you start combining all that stuff together and you're a walking zombie. Um, and I wonder when you were saying about that statistic with the WWE, I wonder if that was like, if you looked at the whole wrestling world, what's, you know, wrestling companies all over the place, independent wrestling companies, I bet the number would be way bigger than just there. You know, like there's, you know, you know, Louis Spicoli, there's so many people that you could start running off their names that weren't anywhere near WWE when they were found dead in a hotel room. Yeah. You know, it's just, uh, it's, but I, I, it's got to be a lot better now. I, I don't think, it, it can't be, it's got to be better. It can't be the same or worse. It's got to be better today. I wanted to get back to what, what Dan was asking earlier, uh, Nux, as far as WWE and how they treated the Usos. I know that it, like if it was my job and I got a DUI <laughs> and I showed up on Monday and said, you know, by the way, I got a DUI over the weekend. I don't think I'm getting a raise in a promotion. Just a guess. You know, I'm probably going to get uh, walked out of the building. But yet, you know, the, the Usos who have done this multiple times, uh, you know, the next, like Dan said, the next show, they're getting the title back. What I, what kind of message does I, does that send um, as far as WWE, as far as these guys' behavior and being rewarded for it? Wow. That's, that, that you know, that's. I'm not. The, I'm not the, uh, probably the right person to answer that question, but I would think the show must go on mentality has always existed in wrestling. And if they had those guys planned to get the belts that night, um, and just because they got arrested for drunk driving wasn't going to prevent them from being at the next show, they jump in the car with somebody else. The, you know, I, I just think it's the show must go on mentality that's always been there. You know, look at what happened with Owen Hart. I mean, it's like the show must go on under. All circumstances with them, it seems. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, that's a sad but tr good example of that. It's I, no more idea. true than what you just said, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I couldn't imagine, Benny, you were saying, you know, picturing yourself in those shoes. Imagine be, having to be the next match out and seeing the blood still on the ring. Like, I don't Jeez. think I could have continued, even, no, even if they wanted the not. show to go on. Uh, but I, I want to get back to what you were you talked about with your personal experiences and and kind of what started us wanting to have this conversation and do this show uh obviously recent news john moxley uh in his return from from a stint in rehab a very high profile stint in rehab uh which he brought about himself he told the story he went on social media which i commend him for for doing that he came back first person out opened the show grabs the microphone barely gets a breath out and somebody in the front says some horrible things. Moxley responds with foul language that has been since edited out of broadcasts and gets the fan ejected. It kind of got the conversation started. You were very vocal on social media about that exchange and that whole ordeal. And I was, I'd love to get your thoughts on it. I don't know John Moxley. I, I've never met him, but in my what I noticed was 
he was extremely rattled by something which normally wouldn't have rattled him. And I think it was because he was in such early sobriety and he was just new to this. It's really hard to go back and get into a wrestling ring when you're used to doing it. Let me back up a little. When you're drinking the way he was probably drinking, you don't have to drink before you go into the ring to be under the influence of alcohol. Once you get it in your system and you're drinking every day, it takes a good month to get it out of your system. That's why um, a lot of these places take that long. And now here he is having to deal with being a professional wrestler without his promise. That was always the promise at the end of the night. You know, I'm assuming drugs would go along with it too. Drinking and drugging is a promise at the end of the night that it's gonna it's gonna do what it's supposed to do for you and, and help you probably sleep at some point at the end of the night. But I noticed with Mox, before he went to rehab, I was noticing some things that was telling me this guy's got something else going on with him. Do you remember a match he had with um, one of the Doc Order? I think it was Doc Order number ten, where he ripped his mask open and the guy was bleeding all over the place and there was just something uncomfortable about watching that match. And I knew myself personally, like this guy's in trouble. There's something going on with him. And I, my guess was drugs and alcohol because he's the first one to say every drug there is out there, I've tried it. He's the one that, that's, that's him talking, not me. And I think when he finally got to the point where he went through this program, it's very similar to that analogy I gave of a car going through a car wash with mechanical problems. He came out of it. He had slimmed down. He's in the ring. But he looked like a deer in the headlights to me. He did not look like somebody that was and – I, and I think if he had been in WWE, they probably wouldn't have put him back in the ring. They would have said, let's take a little more time off. Go, go keep doing what you're doing and see how you are maybe 90 days out. Because it's it's very common for people to try to go back to doing their regular life, whether it's wrestling or working in an office building, way too soon after they quit drinking. There's just no way that you're ready to do that. And I've been watching you know, him every week now on TV. I personally think that he came back too soon, and I hope I'm wrong, but um, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if there is another episode with him in the near future. Respect that. Well, let me get your thoughts, Benny. I'll bounce it to you here in a second. Let me get your thoughts on on another response to that. Uh, it, it came up in in the news, um, and obviously, it was kind of a continuation of a similar story. Uh, but Jim Cornette had commented on the event in a continuation of something he's been he'd said on social media before that. He wasn't defending what the fans said, but the fans said was disgusting. But he commented that wrestlers today don't seem to have the skin that they did back in the day when he was at ringside getting a te- literally try- people trying to stab and kill him. And here's a fan that yells uh, an insult to a, a, a wrestler and he's immediately ejected and the guy goes on a, a tirade. And I'm wondering what your thoughts, if we could kind of cycle to the wrestling thought for a second there, that was it the the like you said that maybe he came back too early or is it possibly in the, the kinder gentler wrestling that stuff like that's just not something wrestlers are trained or able to deal with anymore. I think it's both. And what immediately came to my mind was one night watching stone cold, Steve Austin interview Vince McMahon and Vince telling him that the wrestlers today do not have the same work ethic that you had when you were wrestling. And it's just the truth. I mean, as far as being thin-skinned, social media, I remember when social media came along when I was wrestling for Tony Rumble in the Century Wrestling Alliance, he didn't want anything. He said he doesn't want any 
um, social media involved in his promotion. And, and now it's like it's a part of it. It's a part of everything. And I think that the, the, the thin-skinned wrestler is very common today. And that was definitely an example of it. Because I don't care how horrible it was what the guy said. I don't care how horrible anything any wrestling fan could say. What happened to the days of ignoring them? You know, you just ignore the person and what they say and go and go about your business. But he was it was like his process was being his process was being interfered with and it rattled him so badly. What he said was like it was again, he does some things that are uncomfortable. They're not they're not it's not entertainment. It's not fun. It's not you know, it's 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 dark. It's really, really dark. And that's a person that has a lot of stuff going on inside of them that has not been addressed yet. And he and if he was sitting here, he would probably say, who do you think you are? You don't know me. Who do you think you are to say this stuff? I think that I've been there, done that. That's how. Because I know there was a time when I got sober, you couldn't even beep your horn next to me and I might jump out of the car and come after you. That's 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 why I say I can talk about this stuff freely because I'm on the other side of it. Today, it might still annoy me, but I'm not going to get out of the car like I did, you know, in a road rage like I like I had done in the past. I see a lot of myself in John Moxley. I see a lot of what I see in him. If I I I just hope that that he um, you know, I hope that I'm wrong. I hope that I'm wrong about him. Well, last week we had uh, Paige. Von Hess uh, Sutherland, the the daughter of Kurt Von Hess. And we were talking about because recently WWE had changed the name of one of their stars, uh, Walter, to Gunther. And initially it was Gunther Stark, which was a, uh, I believe, a German U-boat captain in World War II. And we were discussing why would they do that in this day and age when there's really, you know, kayfabe is gone and there's no need for an ethnic heel. But back then... You know, the Germans were all heels, the Russians, the Japanese back in the, you know, the, the, the 60s and the 70s. But uh, now I'm thinking about I can only imagine what a guy like a Kurt Von Hess had to hear when he when he walked into the ring from, you know, five, ten thousand fans. So uh, are we going to now have wrestlers singling out fans to be ejected because, you know, their feelings are hurt? And I would be remiss, Benny, if I didn't mention what about Adrian Adonis? Oh, when my he God. changed oh, over wow. to being oh, adorable Adrian Adonis. I mean, what did he have to put up with? We we actually uh, we did a uh, a show, Benny, kind of a, a recap of old pay per views, and that wasn't terrible. I mean, terribly long ago in the grand scheme of wrestling, and Brian Pillman led a very inappropriate chant against his opponent. And that was that was the baby face getting the crowd to chant these things at somebody. I just think that the, the days of anything it used to be anything goes in the ring. Like anyone could say anything to me when I was wrestling. When I was a jobber in WWF, the announcers said some things about me. It, it's just it's just part of it. It's part of wrestling. It's just part of it, you know. And I noticed in the past when Moxley was um, he would use the F word quite a bit. But it didn't seem quite the same as it did that night, that first night that he came back. It just seemed like, I don't mean to keep going back to him, but it just seemed like uh, something really dark is going on inside of him that was definitely not addressed in rehab. And they just they just sent him through the spin dry and uh, looking forward to the day that he comes back. They want him to come back so they can have the famous wrestler there again. 
And like, I, I just don't think that, and, and, and when he's alone at night and looking in the mirror late at night, he's saying to himself, what is wrong with me? That, why am I feeling this way? It's, it's just the way I feel about it because I've been there, done that. You know, you mentioned Adrian Adonis, who is actually, and we share this in common, one of my favorite all-time heels. What an incredible talent. I mean, you know, from the days uh, when he was you know, wearing, wearing the, uh, the black leather jacket from Hell's Kitchen to, you know, all the way to the very end, the guy was just one of the best heels ever. And he didn't have to use language like that to get, to get the fans all riled up. Well, you know, Moxley, I mean, in, in, his, in his rage, Maybe he forgot there's kids listening to this, or maybe he doesn't care. It seemed to me that when he said what he said, the place went silent. It didn't. It 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 had an uncomfortable feel to it. It just it just didn't feel like wrestling. It felt like something else. It felt like what's the matter with this guy? And I think that's been going on with him for a while. You know, I I, I don't I, I don't know what else to say about it. I just think I think that guy has got a real darkness inside of him that is just he needs to address at some point. I actually think it's it's kind of telling. And Benny, we've talked about it before. How you know AEW is significantly more willing to acknowledge, and I hate to use the word, but acknowledge that wrestling isn't real than some other programs are. And I, I think that moment was telling, not just in like you said, you could hear the vitriol and you you could feel the raw emotion, but. That was a real for for those few seconds. That was a real pro. I, I don't want to call it a promo, but that was real. And a lot of the fans went silent because some of those fans have been wrestling wrestling fans their whole lives, and they've never had a moment where holy shit, this 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 is actually real to me. Uh, I think that was kind of telling of just how raw it was. Uh, that was just perfectly put. You you just said it exactly. I couldn't have said it any better myself, Dan. So even by fake wrestling standards, he he broke the rules. I mean, because the the average wrestling fan now, I mean, they know kayfabe is a, it's it's a thing of the past. But they're they're used to a certain set of behaviors. But he he just flipped that upside down. Yeah, he sure did. It was, and you know, the when I talk about the the twelve steps, I can tell you that he could benefit from those so well, so much. It would help him so much. And then maybe someday come back as a wrestler and, and, and be and, and be the person that he that what he is right now in the wrestling ring, in my opinion, is really a shell of, of what he was. You know, he was a better wrestler when he was drinking and drugging. He doesn't really know who he is without that stuff in his life. And it's just it's just painfully apparent to me. And in, in AA, they have this thing. It's Alcoholics Anonymous. It's supposed to be anonymous. Why? Why is this supposed to be a secret? Why it should be so much more publicized to help more and more people. I mean, if I sat with him for an hour, he would look at me and say, you talk a lot different than they did in that rehab I went to. Tell me more. I know he would because that's not, you know, unless he just wants to hear what he wants to hear and he's going to go out in a a blaze of glory because um, that's always an option too. I've seen too many people die from this than, that then to, to be to not be so candid about it and to not to be so open about it there's there's you know there's um there's yeah, i i just think something bad could happen and i'd love to be wrong about it well let's uh let's put a hypothetical then if you know you, you talked about your book uh how every chapter could have been its own book its own story 
you you've said it to, when you started first talking about John Moxley that you didn't you, you know you don't know him he doesn't know you but it, it, let's let's hypothetical if he did if you were there if you had his ear his you know he listened to you what did having been there many years before him what advice would you give him in handling this right now so glad you were, you would ask me that question I appreciate this I would say and if I had his ear that would be the thing. Because it can't be me going to another person and saying, I know how to help you. They would have to say to me, like I said, you talk different. What Can you tell me some more about what you're talking about? And I would tell him, take a little more time off. You're not ready to come back to this. And, and, and it involves, it's, there's, there is no other answer. There is no other answer that I can give you. It's doing the step work. And doing the step work with someone that knows how to take you through the steps. And on the other end of it is freedom for somebody that has been struggling with drugs and alcohol for as long as I did. It's almost like you're in a prison cell with the door wide open and you're pacing back and forth inside. All you got to do is walk out. But you just keep pacing and pacing and pacing. And that dude is pacing back and forth inside of the cell right now. I'm curious. So... You know, nowadays everything's public with social media and everything in wrestling. Like I said, you know, kayfabe that you know the curtain's been drawn back. What happened in the seventies, in the eighties? You know, some a territory wrestler had these addiction issues. Well, number one, I mean, you know, the the promoter's not going to pay for a rehab back then, and these guys are getting paid by the week. There's no guaranteed contracts. Um, you know, and and they're you know having to feed their families and everything, and they're scared to death that if they miss a little bit of time that they're going to lose their spot on the card. How was it dealt with back then, addiction? As far as I know, they just kept trudging along. They just kept, they, they didn't, they didn't deal with it. They just, they, they ended up, that's how they lived their lives. You know, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know what each individual person did, but I don't know a whole lot of stories about people going to rehab. You know, I, I don't want to get into mentioning too many names, but I know guys that have been struggling with drugs and alcohol for years in wrestling, and they made a lot of money, and they ended up um, a mess, a complete mess, and they never got help. So I think back then that probably was more the norm than, you know, I'm sure some went to rehab. I'm sure they, you know, um, but I I don't think rehab works. I don't think it does anything. All it does, it's, it's putting a Band-Aid on a shotgun wound. Go ahead, Benny. Um, so one thing I did want to ask you about, which we didn't ask you about last time, was your involvement in yoga. And I, because you you spent a lot of time in the book about yoga, and I actually have been doing DDPY for several years. So I, I wanted to, you to talk about that. Did that help you as far as your, your addiction, as far as trying to, you know, cure yourself? Well, when I was struggling, I mean, I was dishonest. I was untrustworthy. I had a really bad temper. Um, I was dealing with road rage and that was 15 years sober. So just putting down drugs and alcohol does not necessarily mean that you're going to be better. In fact, it, it, it doesn't. If you were just drinking too much, you could be fine. If, if you, if you just stop, you could be absolutely fine. But if you have a soul sickness, like I did, um, this, you're going to have to do the step work. And what, before I found my, my, my way to that, I was looking for other things. I was reading every self-help book you could imagine on the planet. I was trying every uh, healthy eating, uh, anything that you could imagine. And then uh, an ex-girlfriend asked me if I was interested in going to a yoga studio that had just opened up near our house. And we went and it was called Heated Power Yoga. 
And it was it's the place is called Rhode Island Power Yoga. It's similar to what DDP does, except it's in 100 degree heat. And um, I immediately knew that this was going to be something that was going to help me. And um, I started practicing yoga after 30 years in the in the weight room. I stopped lifting weights. And after a couple of years of yoga, I went back one day to the gym and I was just as strong as I was from from the yoga practice. But the biggest thing that I, I've gotten from yoga is the mindfulness is learning how to turn my mind off, learning how to not just my, my mind used to just race constantly going, 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 laying in bed at night, waking up in the morning. It just never stopped and learning how to uh, meditate and um, you know, the poses are great and the physical aspect of it is great, but just being able to to be calm, to truly be calm. And but when I was after six years of yoga, I was still dealing with all those other things. And I, you know, I I I can't give you a different answer. It was when I finally did the 12 steps is when I was fine. When I when I was finally um able to recover. But I love yoga. I still practice it to this day. I've been fortunate. I go to yoga. I've been to yoga studios all over the world, from here to Australia, up and down the East Coast. You know, every, every everywhere I go, I try to get to a studio. And it's actually in 100 degree temperature. Yeah, the the studio that I go to, Rhode Island Power Yoga, they have a combination of heat and steam, and the temperature is usually up around the high high 90s, and sometimes it gets over 100. And and one of the reasons they create those conditions in the class is for you to be able to deal with it. Instead of, st in, in the first couple of classes, I used to be like this, why is it so hot in here? And all the, and I'd have all these girls around me that were like 90 pound ballet dancers uh, laughing at me because <laughs> you know they, they're like fine. I'd look to this, I'd be like, you're not even sweating. How come you're not sweating? And I just like, and, and, and they told me, well, you know, you can walk out if you want. We call that the walk of shame. Oh. And so I had to stick it out and I and I did. And eventually I caught on to what was going on and it was like, well, I can stay in this heat for one breath. I can stay in this pose for one breath. And then you build on that. And it's just something that um, yoga is, is really helps when it's done with repetition. You know, it, it's not something that you just do for a week and then put it on a shelf and go away and come back to it the following week. It's really helpful, like playing a musical instrument. You know, it's really helpful to to um, to do to do it often. Well, I'm going to kind of circle back to two points you made. You talked about yoga and earlier you mentioned you didn't like the anonymous side of AA. And uh, I talked about one of the great examples of drugs in wrestling was Jake Roberts. And he, they had the documentary, the success story he had getting clean, sobering up because of DDP yoga and his involvement in that was kind of a combination of both of those. It showed the, how, how yoga and exercise and things like that can really play a part, but it also put a face on some, <clears throat> on that, that condition. And I remember distinctively in the very beginning of the documentary, the producer mentioned that when they, when they first got there, he was dumbfounded. Like this is Jake, the snake Roberts larger than life. You know, one of my favorite wrestlers for 20 years. And this is his house. Like what the hell happens? And I, I was wondering if you, in, in your connections and your work, and we're going to kind of get away from the dark stuff here shortly, your work, uh, do you have any thoughts on whether or not 
that helped that face, that documentary, that, that putting a name and, and Hey, you guys can get better. Did, did that help at all? Did it, did it kind of expand anything or was it sort of a, not as big a deal as it, as it seemed like? No, I think when, when you, when you have someone like that, who was admired by so many people and, and loved by so many people and probably feared by, by people too, um, it, it could give a person hope. That you know that they could. That my my biggest thing is I said it in the very beginning. It doesn't discriminate. You know, it doesn't really matter what your status is in life, what your bank account looks like, what your color is, what your gender is. It it just doesn't. And I also think that another thing that people seem to think that this stuff is all under the same umbrella, whether it be alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling, cigarettes, whatever it is, a person can be addicted to. And I totally disagree with that. If I have a problem with alcohol. It doesn't necessarily mean I have a problem with drugs. I've never, I've never um, had a gambling problem. I've never, you know, I can go to a casino and lose twenty bucks, and I'm like, ah, oh, this sucks. I don't want to do this, and I'll leave. It's, it's, it's not all the same thing. They're all very, very different. Different um, addictions are all very different. They're not the same at all. Like Dan said, let's, a little bit lighter topic. So I, I noticed that you're writing for the, is it rinewstoday.com? Yes. Is that, is that the online paper? It is. So what what kind of, I read a couple of the stories, very, very good. What are you writing about mostly? Well, what I'm trying to do and the way I pitched it to them, they originally hired me to go and cover Comic-Con in Providence. They had done a story on my book and the publisher of RI News Today, Nancy Thomas, didn't have anyone to cover Comic-Con for some reason. So she got my phone number from the person that did the article on me, and she called me up and she said, would you be interested in going and covering Comic-Con and writing a story on it? And I said, sure. And I was just telling somebody about this today, Benny, and you're going to appreciate this. I had yet to see Cobra Kai when I went to cover Comic-Con. <laughs> And I am pretty much obsessed with Cobra Kai these days. Where, where are you and at now? What season? I'm I'm current. Oh, you okay? Wow. I'm current. And I went to Comic Con, and I went around the wrestlers, and I went around uh, this and that, and I turned my nose up to the entire cast of Comic Con with a full press credential pass that I could have walked right up to them and and interviewed any one of them. So unfortunately, that didn't happen that night. But the first story I wrote for Comic-Con led me to asking them if they would consider letting me do lifestyle stories on people that are doing good things in Rhode Island. And if you're looking for someone that's doing something good, it's usually not too hard to find. And I found a, a whole bunch of people. And I just recently finished an article that will be coming out uh, probably sometime this week on a local wrestler here named Dan the Punisher Vega, who's been on the independent scene for 20 years. He's wrestling in Puerto Rico. He's been an extra in WWE for um, a really long time. And his father was his biggest fan. And, and um, his father actually got to see him on at WrestleMania 35, right before he died. He was on the, um, the CIA uh, SUV CIA teams that were with Batista when he wrestled Triple H in the in uh, the WrestleMania 35, and uh, the stories are really, it's a great story about him, and they're, they're also sending me to cover a professional boxing uh, card that's coming in two weeks to the Crown Plaza in Warwick, Rhode Island, that's going to be featuring the return of Jamie Hurricane Clampett, who is a, um, 
a female boxer who is uh, a legend in the boxing world, and she's been retired for eight years, and she's coming back for a fight. Wow. And so I'm going to be going to the press conference tomorrow for that and covering that. So I got this nice little side writing gig going on, too. Nice. That's awesome. I, I got to know, I mean, uh, obviously in the audio form, you guys can't see the my background here. My my The studio I record in is just filled with all kinds of nerd, celebrity, geek merchandise. Um, no, anybody that knows me knows that's my thing. I'm curious, how does one get, get that? I would walk to Rhode Island for a Comic-Con press pass. Like how, how did that, how did that come about? How did you, I know you said you, you, you ended up kind of in, in that position, but did they reach out? Was that just sort of luck of the draw? How did that come about? Well, like uh, the Rhode Island news today, um, uh, publisher, her name is Nancy Thomas was looking for someone to cover comic con. And she said, I could get you a full, uh, a full access, uh, past, uh, press credential. If you can go and cover it and write a short story about it for us. And you know that uh, that day, and, and that that was it. It was it was I was in the right place at the right time. And you know I was there with um, Adam Cole and Ruby Soho and um, Britt Baker and um, who else was there? Uh, Bubba Ray Dudley was there. Velvet Sky was there. Um, Jerry Lawler, Honky Tonk Man. I mean, you can go on and on the wrestlers. But the, but I, I will go to my grave really kicking myself for the fact that I had an opportunity to go to see Sensei Lawrence and didn't and didn't take that didn't take that opportunity because I was turning my nose up to them at the time. I was just amazing because I want to just go on the record right now that I think that Cobra Kai is one of the best television shows in in history. It's just such a great show. You, I will say, uh, off topic for just a second. Sorry, I'll get back to you in a second, Benny. We live in the era of nostalgia. Everything is getting remade, rebooted, uh, relaunched. They're recasting people. They're bringing back old characters ev everywhere you look. And and in in the ten years plus, that's probably that's been the biggest thing in Hollywood. Nobody, nobody has perfected the nostalgia continuation plus giving you a new story to care about like that show has. And the biggest reason to be in Cobra Kai is to not be a pussy. <laughs> well, uh, yes. Well, um, I, mean, I guess you'd probably be an Eagle Fang guy at this point, right? Well, if I told you I have an Eagle Fang t-shirt, would you believe me? Uh, after your story, absolutely. But I am here tonight with my buddy Benny, representing with my Boogie's Wrestling Camp shirt on, and I'm I'm hoping to. Oh, see do you have a BWC shirt on there? I I do. I have the one from 2018, and I'm hoping that we get to see each other and spend a little more time at Boogie's birthday this year. Absolutely, I'm going to be there in August, and uh, I'm going to be there for the graduation as well. Can't miss yeah. that. Well, there's really no place like it on earth. It's it's I consider it a magical place, and. Um, you know, that what's better than the AEW world champion comes from the BWC? Well, you know, from my perspective, I mean, I hadn't met Jimmy, you know, we had him on the show and everything. And I emailed him a couple of times and um, I showed up <clears throat> early for his birthday party, introduced myself. And he is like I was his long lost brother, the way he greeted me. And, and it was a thousand percent sincere. And, you know, it wasn't there's nothing phony about Jimmy Valiant. He's the most genuine man on the face of the earth. And he just I mean, it was the whole time I was there. He introduced me to Jeff Katz. Uh, we didn't get to meet Brendan, unfortunately. But, um, you know, Jeff Katz, um, the, the Valiant sisters, um, uh, Captain Joe, uh, uh, Mike, Mike Mars, everybody. 
And you really, you leave that place feeling like you belong there. After like four hours, you, you believe you, you, you feel like you're a part of the family. And I, I can't wait to get back. I wish I could go there more often. And, and it's just, it, it's just a, um, you couldn't really put any better than you just did. And we would be remiss if we didn't mention Magnet Man. Uh, Absolutely. Big M. Absolutely. And the, uh, you know, my, my first experience going there was on one of the reasons I wrote my uh, wrote my book in 2018. I drove down there. I was very down on my luck. It was before I had done any real step work. I wasn't really sure where I was going in life. And I had a very similar experience to you have that you had. And when I, I, I drove there from Rhode Island on my Harley Davidson, um, and when I pulled up the, the long driveway that goes up and I saw the white Cadillac with the Valiant Brothers written in the back window and New York plates. I mean, I just get goosebumps every time I think about that. That was just the coolest thing to me. I, I wasn't I wasn't even sure if, <clears throat> if I was even, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> bad cold, if I was going to meet him. And, you know, I pull up and there he is. He's already outside. It was an hour early. And, you know, you, you can't mistake Jimmy. And right from the get-go, he was, he was warm, accommodating. And, you know, you're talking about a Hall of Fame wrestler. And I would argue that there is no more popular wrestler alive on this earth than Jimmy Valiant. I mean, maybe you, somebody could argue with me about it, but I, I everybody that talks about Jimmy absolutely love the, loves the guy. Well, the morning before we went to BWC, I was waiting in a diner for my good friend Jeff Katz at the River City Diner in Richmond, Virginia. And I was... I took a chance. The waitress came over and I said, guess what we're doing today? I'm waiting for my friends and we're going to the birthday party for handsome Jimmy, the boogie woogie man Valiant. Do you know who that is? And this huge smile came across her face. And she said, of course I know who that is. I used to see him wrestle at the Richmond Coliseum. He was always so nice to me. Then the people at the next table picked up on the conversation. They started telling their Jimmy Valiant stories. Then the next table. And then the guys started coming out of the kitchen to see what all the hubbub was about. And then a guy at the counter slammed his fist on the counter and he said, Jimmy Valiant is the South. And I'm sitting there saying, wow. Uh, look what I just started. Look, I mean, if I hadn't come here today, this would not be happening. And when Jeff walked in, he said, what's going on? I said, I just told him we're going to Boogie's birthday party today. Yes. And the day just got better and better and you better. Had a Jimmy you revival know. at the diner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he was, you know, he, he was, he's just as big today down there as, as he ever was. When, yeah. when I did the story about him for pro wrestling stories, <laughs> I, I had no idea uh once they ran the story and i actually shared it to the uh the memphis uh wrestling page on facebook and just the overwhelming number of comments and there was not one negative comment you know, usually you know a lot of these wrestlers there's always somebody who doesn't like them nothing nothing bad about jimmy whatsoever it would be hard to, to find something bad to say about him and i and i'm not trying to toot my own horn here but one of my favorite experiences was last summer when i went down there and surprised him for his birthday with a replica of the WWF Tag Team Championship belt that I felt was missing from the camp. And the, the next morning after I had uh, posted it on YouTube, uh, it, it had over 4,000 views in a matter of hours. That I was so happy I was there for that. And he was genuinely, genuinely touched by that. Well, that's why I kept asking him, do you know why I asked you to come in the ring today? And he was like, no, I don't, because he didn't know. And I was kind of building it up to him. I was telling him, this is going to be big. We're going to make history. And he's like, Nux, what are you talking about? I said, you're going to have to wait. 
great it was stuff. Worth, it was worth the wait. And Dave Milliken did a great job making that belt. And um, I just felt the camp needed it because th there was there was a WWF replica replica from like I think the Steiner Brothers era, or maybe the Hart Foundation era. I'll take that back. And it was just not. It just wasn't going to do justice to what you know what needed to be there for him. Well, and you're, and you're talking about arguably. I, I think they were the greatest WWF tag team of all time. The Valiant Brothers. Yeah, you're not going to get any argument from me on that. Yeah. I, nope. I don't think there's any wrestling purists out there that wouldn't put the Valiant Brothers on the Mount Rushmore of tag wrestling. Well, I mean, they, they were so ahead of their time and what they were doing and writing things on the back of their trunks and the promos that they were doing and the just the whole look and the way... They, they managed to transition to bring in a third Valiant brother, and it worked. The whole thing was just, you know, um, Jimmy Valiant was my favorite wrestler when I was a kid, and Jimmy Valiant is my favorite wrestler today. There you go. You talk about his uh, his popularity. You know, Benny, when, when we first started the show, uh, we used to joke, you know, not, not, not a bad little experience for two friends with a couple of microphones and a laptop. And we had Jimmy on and the popularity of that episode, you know, our little podcast that could we charted on on, on Apple and Google and all these sites because of how many hits that episode got all these years later, even a small, you know, just just a, a small little post on Facebook. Hey, we're talking to Jimmy Valiant. And people came out of the woodwork from 30 different countries to, to, to listen to that episode. It was, it was, I, I mean, I don't even want to say dumbfounded, but it was just, it was incredible the response we got from his popularity in 2021. That's just wonderful. But as, as we wrap up, um, I mean, we talked a lot today, uh, pretty important stuff. I think it's pretty uh, big deal, especially with uh, the, stories today and and you know Nuggles, you've uh, you've touched on a lot of your personal stuff the uh the book you wrote waking up from the wrestling ring to the yoga mat available on amazon but i want to give you the uh, slate anything you want do you have any final thoughts on what we've touched on today well like i said with all of those things we talked about earlier that's much more serious than uh, wrestling talk but it was just my experience that was just what happened to me um, I, I'm, I'm open to anyone that is ever feeling like they're struggling with drugs or alcohol that could reach out to me. You can reach me at my website at yogibiker.net. You can also find Knuckles Nelson on Facebook and feel free to send me a message. I'm always available to talk to anyone and, and try to help and share my experience with you and, and uh, maybe help you to get on the same path that, that I'm on now because I can tell you I am totally free. I am recovered, and it is all because of the 12-step work that I did. And I would, I would wish that for everyone. Living in addiction is a really dark, awful place to be. And anything I could do to help anyone get out of it, I'd love to do that. Well, you you said in the beginning that everything is different. I kind of wanted to end on this thought. Do you have any advice to anybody out there to avoid? cut you know st stop it before it starts or is this one of those things that that some people just won't be able to get away from well I, if somebody feels like that it's become a problem it probably has it's as simple as that if you think it's a problem it probably is and there are many places to turn and it, uh, you know i'm not the only one but i'm more than willing to help anyone i can with any questions i i'm open to answering any questions i can as you can see here tonight 
Well, again, I I know this. Uh, hopefully, nothing we touched on was too uh, too hard to talk about. So I appreciate your time and, and your uh, openness on that. Benny, any final thoughts for the evening? Well, I just wanted to thank Knuckles from the bottom of my heart because you know I have all the love and, and respect in the world for him. For number one, you know his book. He was completely transparent about all his issues. And number two, his willingness to help anybody, like he just said, that that's special. I learned all that at BWC, my friend. BWC for life. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know what, Benny? We, uh, we got a little dark today. Why don't we end on the best note we can? And you, uh, we can end with a shout-out to, to the BWC. Absolutely. Dan and Benny in the Ring is brought to you by Boogie's Wrestling Camp. Founded in 1992 by wrestling legend Jimmy Valiant and his beautiful wife Angel, BWC is situated in majestic scenic Shawsville, Virginia. Whether you want to be a wrestler, manager, announcer, or valet, BWC is the place to be. At BWC, you'll receive the best possible training from Jimmy and his amazing staff. You'll learn holes, bumps, psychology, promos, and much more. And the cost is just $250 down and $20 per session, which is way Cheaper than any wrestling camp you're going to find anywhere. Uh, Boogie's Wrestling Camp has turned out 29 graduating classes. The most notable most notable alumnus being AEW World Champion Hangman Adam Page. And at BWC, you're not just getting a, a joining a wrestling school; you're becoming a part of the wrestling family, like we talked about. Interested? Visit JimmyValiant.Weebly.com for more information on Boogie's Wrestling Camp, BWC, the Ring of Dreams where the dream becomes reality and tell them Dan, Benny and Knuckles sent you. Absolutely. So for the BS express himself, Benny Scala for Knuckles Nelson, uh, the book anywhere books can be found on Amazon is waking up from the wrestling ring to the yoga mat. I'm Dan Spastiano. Have a good night, everyone. And we will see you next time. We're in the ring. Good night, folks.